Welcome to another episode of Europe's B2B SaaS Sales Podcast. Today with uh, Patrick Dalving as co-founder and CEO of Sequestro. Uh, he really helps uh, companies to answer tenders ahead of the pack because requests for proposals, requests for informations, all these questionnaires and event releases can really be a pain once you want to sell six figures. Uh, and like, yeah, sometimes in my own life at Accenture back in times, I was like spend days, sometimes weeks, um, like putting together material that I send and then win rate was really uncertain. It was really demotivating and that's um, what we're going to be discussing today. Patrick, before co-founding Sequestered two and a half years ago, spent 25 years in the commercial world, also as a VP, um, international or continental Europe, a trend micro and then like in some smaller companies. So really looking forward to um, like learning from you, Patrick, also how you, how you went to found your own company and Maybe you can start with like two actionable tips. How, what do I do if I re receive a request for a proposal? How can I answer it more efficiently? What's two things I can implement next week? Well, one thing that you should do in all cases is go through the paperwork and be very honest to yourself. Uh, is this a tender that we believe we can win? Or is this a tender that is potentially written on one of our competitors? We didn't know about it. It just dropped at my desk and all of a sudden I'm getting very, very excited because I'm fooling myself believing I can win this. So mm. be honest to yourself and be make sure that you that you don't assume too many things simply because the tender arrives at your desk. Very frequently, companies need to just have multiple options, even when they already know which direction they want to go. Secondly, Instead of continuing answering tenders in, in the same way as we've been doing it for last uh, for the last 20 years, uh, having a lot of manual work, having a process in place, but still a lot of manual work, a lot of repetitive work that needs to be done, There, it is a time where there is basically tooling available. There are uh, tools in place. We've got tools in place that basically help optimize, streamline the process, automate the process not to replace the human being, but to enhance the human, the human being's capabilities. Yeah. How would, you, how would you recognize this when you get basically like an email with like an attachment or like a link to paperwork? Because you don't, you don't often you cannot really speak to the actual person, right? That's indeed very frequently that's a challenge. Uh, one of the things which is very important is, uh, did you know about this tender? Did you know it was around? Did you know about the project? If that's not the case, then very frequently, and that's again, that's that first question that we tapped into. Um, yeah, be certain that you're not fooling yourself. Yeah. Secondly, if you have, uh, if you receive the document, make sure that you go through the detail and that you figure out, is this something that we're good at? Yeah. Is it part of your core business? If it is a big stretch, then again, questioning yourself like, is this a tender we should be spending time on? Because what I've personally experienced in my 25 years of in, in the cybersecurity space, very frequently people get very excited about, oh, we we're, we're invited, we can participate in this tender. And that translated very rapidly in, we feel that we're going to win this tender. So all of a sudden, before you knew it, 15, 20 people got involved yeah, spending hours, countless hours on putting documentation together, answering questions, commenting on specific topics. <laughs> and before you know it, you get dragged in with a big team and then you're proud when you send it over to the customer. But let's not forget, there can only be one, one winner in the race. 
Uh, yeah. So you don't want to end up with a polite email saying, thank you for your participation. But for this one, we've chosen to go with somebody else. But uh, play again the next time, please. Huh? Yeah, because you don't want to have like 10 plus people, like half a dozen. You want, don't want half a dozen people involved in something that's anyways you're not your core business, right? Well, if, you, if you start calculating what is, what is the cost of doing that kind of business, uh, first of all, if, uh, if it's not your core business, what is your chance of winning? Yeah. If you weren't aware about the project and it simply drops on your desk, what is the chance uh, that it is a tender that you can win? You haven't influenced it. You weren't even aware. So, yeah, you should be fairly uniquely positioned to connect, to, to, to still be able to win it. Uh, yeah. So you only have the time that you can spend one. So be... Uh, be very critical to yourself on where do I where do I invest my time? Yeah, and, and where how do you decide that if you are uniquely positioned to win, if you don't know who else received the tender? Because sometimes somebody's very very honest, right? Like for example, somebody told like, hey, we sent this to Accenture, Deloitte, and Infosys. And like we're not working with any of you guys, but this is the first core bank transformation ever. Yeah. So and in other cases, well, you're just like, if, they, they send even a request for information. like, we send this to everybody, please do your best, and then we'll trust you. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, I'm uh, indeed glad that you uh, bring that up, Manuel, because I, I do believe that there's a significant distinction between are we in the... Uh, are, are we in the RFI phase, the request for information? There, basically, the customer is, uh, is asking for input from multiple parties. Yeah, uh, it's, it's an opportunity... Uh, to inform the customer about your capabilities. There I would say like, okay, you'll probably you'll probably need to put in the time and the effort. If you're in the RFP phase and the customer is almost saying like, okay, we are basically ready to buy the right solution and you weren't aware or you weren't involved, then there's a slim chance only that you're going to win. Uh, but yeah. in the in the RFP in the RFI phase, you the customer is still in in the phase of yeah, getting informed. Now, what I personally believe is, if you if you work on specific large customer opportunities, you should be aware before the RFI or RFP comes out. That's yeah. basically a golden rule. Yeah, and. What else, like once you receive the request for proposal or the tender and you think like, yes, we can win this because it's actually in our core business, it would contribute to it. We are uniquely positioned to win due to X, Y, Z, case studies, expertise, people we have on our team or software, whatever it is. What else? It would be like a checklist item that you would say like, okay, now we have this. How do we make sure we increase our win rate? Yeah, one of the key things there is, okay, what does the timeline look like? Yeah. Do we have the capability to put enough time in just answering and participating? Do we have, do we have enough time to deliver this project accordingly? Do yeah. we have the resource in-house? That's an important one. If you got stuck on that one, uh, well, rest assured, your, your quality of answering and participating in the tender will not be at the right level to win the yeah. tender. So tendering is not like, okay, let's quickly do this. Tendering is like, uh, yeah, for, for, for a part of the team, it should be their core business. That's why we see many large organizations uh, basically dedicating a number of headcounts and saying, okay, these people are part of my tender desk. They are the professionals. They know how to run this project. They know 
who they need to get involved and when they need to get those people involved. Uh, they, uh, they will guard that all the deadlines are being met and that the, the right quality of information is, is being gathered to be shared with the customer. Uh, so yeah. those are all very, very, very relevant points. Sometimes people get very opportunistic, yes. but that's not the way to basically boost your tendering business. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, we have a lot of like uh, B2B software as a service startup founders and sales leaders in our community, right? And for them, like often, if you go from like zero to a million in annual revenue, maybe um, you never did this, right? And at one point you become relevant enough that you're invited to this alongside huge costs, huge companies. So maybe like, um, let's say you have a spend management solution and suddenly somebody's like, we invited um for example, like SAP um, and their solution in it, we invited like Yoko Moss, um, Pleo and, and somebody else like besides SAP Conquer. Yeah. How do you make sure you're compared apples to apples with somebody else? Well, one of the, uh, one of the key things there is focus on your own strength. Uh, make sure that you're able to uh, express to the customer how you're different from the competitor. Uh, make sure that you fully understand what are the core challenges that your customer has. Yeah. Uh, so if 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 the problems that the customer is facing or the challenge that they're facing uh, is uh, is described in a very fluffy way, uh, mm -hmm. that that becomes a very difficult one. If you if you clearly understand what are the pain points of the different persona within your potential customer, then you can start basically positioning yourself towards how do we solve your main pain points. And I do believe that that is something that uh, that that companies should be focused on. What yeah. is the customer's pain? And how do we take that pain away? Much more than how do we how, how do we beat or how do we beat specific competitors out there? Let's be honest, if the customer really has got a preference of only working with very large, very established company, or they've got a company policy that says, we prefer to go for only very established uh, providers, tough can be, life can be very tough for a young startup who hasn't got enough, enough proof in the market. Yeah. Now, there, are, there is a portion of the market of potential customers that say, we find it quite charming to work with startups because they're a lot more flexible. They're a lot more agile. They're at least yeah. listening to my needs and they potentially would build towards my needs to solve my specific pain points. Yeah. They do it faster, they do it much more flexible and they're easier to work with. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to dive deeper a little bit on like this this point which i think is really important like if you say like if the problem is not framed clearly you cannot you cannot basically propose like a specific solution right what do you do in this case because often it's the thing like hey like let's talk to the customers like no i don't talk to you just like answer 100 pages of powerpoint and 100 pages 100 lines of excel do you instantly kill the deal and say like well then if if i cannot understand i don't want to be understood or how do you proceed here there is there is indeed a firm judgment that you need to make if you because very frequently you're not you're no longer allowed to talk to the people that are basically in the process one of the things that you could do then is okay who else do we know in the organization yeah or who else do we know who knows the right person within the organization yeah. 
that are not part of the, they are not invited to the tendering process, but they're close enough to the customer to, uh, to get some additional information that might be helpful. If all those doors are closed and you haven't done the pre-work and the tender arrived, well, then you're basically, you're in the dark. And you set, uh, and you then, set up for failure pretty much, right? <laughs> and then basically there is a there is a very high chance that you will uh, that you will not make it absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and what we what we then used to do in those cases is focus extremely on the strong points where we knew we were fine either unique or much better than. And then documented that with uh, with real life examples of how we solved it or a specific challenge at another company of roughly the same size or in a similar industry, or uh, so that you were you were basically not only telling that you were very good at something, but you also had the proof points to back that up. Yeah, yeah. How but do you let's do not forget? If if you if you come in that in that situation, you're already starting way back when you start the fight. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. So I mean, I agree. Out of personal painful experience, we've, we've all that we discussed and crossed a little like five point checklist on this. Like can review in the end. I mean, now then, like of twenty five years in business in larger companies, you you co-found and say questions like enough. This needs to be easier. Tell us a bit about your journey from being a VP in commercial uh, for for a while, right? Uh, and then like the switch into the cold water to like say wake up one morning, you're your own boss, but also there's no brand, there's no structure, there's no commercials. Yeah, because it's it's going from it's going from one extreme to another. Eh? So if I go back to my life as a vice president of continental Europe in uh, Trend Micro, a very established cybersecurity company right. where I spent more than 12 years of my career, we had a big name in the market. We were recognized as a market leader. We had a, a whole range of solutions for multiple uh, challenges. Uh, so whenever we wanted to open up a door, it was easy. Uh, right. If I if I compare now at Sequesto, who who do you say uh, Sequesto, and how big are you? Are you six people? It's it's all, and and you're you're building your initial set of products. Wow, that's like two separate worlds. Now, what made me make that move? Uh, if I look back, I had come at a point in my career where it was basically I was at a at a at a, at a at a crossroad where I basically need to decide after trend, am I going to spend the next part of my career with a similar, uh, with a similar company in the same industry, uh, basically continuing on the expertise that I had built for over 25 years with Symantec and, 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 and Trend Micro, and then go and work or, or join one of the other big names in the market? Yeah. Or am I going yeah. to challenge myself by really saying, okay, uh, Going for the easy route, that would be a bit, yeah, a bit more of the same. And so I decided it's time to challenge myself and basically start with start something from scratch. When I look at my career, I've always been growing businesses. I had started uh, when I when I joined the the semantic team. There was a team of ten people, fifteen people roughly, and I grew that to one hundred and twenty people. Uh, there was uh, a bit of revenue, and I grew that to 150 million of revenue. At Trend, I joined Trend. The team was 10. I moved it to close to 100. 
the revenue was a few million. I grew that to close to 100 million. What I, what I had never done was that that from zero to one, that, yeah. that really starting with nothing out there, starting from scratch, basically coming up with an idea, building a product, building a team, building a customer set, and then growing that into something which scales. So I thought that would be that would be something where I'm going to challenge myself big time. Right. And I'm going to prove to myself that I can also do this. And that was basically for me personally, that was that was the main driver. Then the thing is, okay, what am I going to do? Yes. Uh, what is my company <laughs> going to deliver? What are we going to build? That was something which also took me a bit of time. But then I remembered like in, in those 25 years of cybersecurity, I very frequently saw when we were getting in RFIs, RFPs, in our case, very extensive security questionnaires, two, 300 questions in an Excel sheet where you needed to answer yes, no, and give a bit of an explanation how you do it, compliant, non-compliant, you know, the typical stuff, you've seen it before yourself. Uh, and, and, and I then saw that sales got those lists in, they threw them over the fence. Uh, yes. an, an engineer, a pre-sales guy then needed to figure out all the answers fill in the spreadsheet, hand it over to the sales again, and then the sales would deliver it to the customer. And yeah. I saw, in many cases, I saw a lot of frustration within the team. Ah, here's the sales again with another stupid questionnaire that I need to fill in. I don't have time. My schedule is filled with customer appointments. Right. I can't do this on top of my regular business. Uh, there was always the opportunistic approach from the sales team, like, oh, we're invited to the RFP. Let's yes, go. Everybody work night shift in the weekends. Please. Uh, so oh. everybody works for the night. Everybody works in the weekend. And then on Monday, we deliver. And then two weeks later, you get an email saying, thank you for participating, but we decided different. And your solution engineering and pre-sales and engineering team is really angry at you because it's like, Patrick, like you, you told me two weeks ago, drop everything. Like, uh Screw your, screw your wife and kids and uh, like just work the weekend and nights because this is going to be game changing and this happened for the yeah. third time and I'm out like yeah I go so to, when the, when I, I go to I our came... CEO and I tell him if Patrick comes again with such a request I'm just going to decline politely and say like no way and if he keeps pushing and say like otherwise I leave the company well Patrick should leave or I leave right I mean this yeah. is where sales and product get into fight well, that's it. Then you you see that. So when I was at that crossroad of, okay, what's my next step in my career? Uh, I started I started doing some, 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 having some talks with people. Like I knew how we handled that throughout my career. I knew the frustration. I knew all the, uh, how time consuming that process was, uh, how, how repetitive some of the tasks were. And so I started doing some initial research to figure out how are other companies handling this process? And I basically came to the conclusion, 99% of the organizations I was talking to, and I interviewed 250 people of close to 200 different companies in, in multiple industries in a number of countries across Europe. Yeah. And the answer was, we use Microsoft Office tools. Yes. We do a lot of repetitive work. When we look at a question that we need to answer, we think, mm, have I seen this question before? Yes, I think we did. And I think I remember in which previous tender it was. I go searching in my SharePoint uh, file system to come up with the file and then try to find the question and the answer. And then I copy and paste it in the new document. 
And then I move yeah. on to the next question. And yeah. that was basically it. Yeah, it's crazy. And the, it's crazy. And the more people it. I was talking to, the more that were basically replaying that same process over and over again. And I thought that there, there has to be a smarter way to do this. 100%. That's how we came up with the idea of building that platform. Now, uh, one thing, and I think it's really amazing that you that you also had this conversation with 200 people, not just like went out and it's like, I've been a VP at Trend Micro and I know how it's done. I built the perfect product, right? On the zero to 1 million ARR journey, like so many founders, obviously, like, and you see the same way, apparently, like focus too much on building a perfect product, not spending enough time. I mean, the screenshots on your platform look pretty elaborate in a sense, right? Like, like how do you... How do you make sure you don't overbuild? And if you need to build a lot, like that you build the right thing. Yeah, well, that, there, that's a, a very, um, yeah, a very important one, I would say, because uh, especially when I, even when I look at my own development team, they get very excited about all the, uh, yeah, all, all the stuff that they're building. So very rapidly, they might go in overdrive and continue building all kind of, uh, all kind of features and functions that are not necessarily adding that much value. They're, they're, they look nice. They uh, We convince ourselves that they're handy, but is the customer really asking for it? And can we, can we really, can we pinpoint what is the value that it will bring? So whenever we, whenever we talk to prospects, whenever we work with initial users of our platform and they come up with additional capabilities they would like us to build, the first thing that me and my co-founder will always do is uh, have a word with a number of our existing customers to figure out, well, first we think about, is this something that would really make sense to other customers? Will it add value to our users and to our platform? Yes. If we come to the conclusion like, yeah, this is something that you've asked me to build, but we've never heard it before from anybody else, <laughs> we would start questioning, like, is this what we need to build? Right. So we would then validate that with the rest of our user community. If many people in the user community then say like, oh, yeah, that would be a, a really neat thing if you could add that into the platform, it would create additional value. Then we would look at seriously start looking at building it. Absolutely. You, you ask them like, well, um, how much is it worth it to you? And if they say 50K and it costs you 10K to build, you do it. Or you find three other people who also pay 50K. So then fund the development. So as, as a startup sales guy, like I, I need to ask you this, right? I mean, who at Sequestor, who's your ideal customer profile? Who's most success, uh, successful with you? And if I'm a startup founder, like how, or if I'm like you got your customer, how much to invest? Just roughly four or five, six figures a year. So if you if you look at who's our uh, who's our ideal profile to do business with, to be honest, it's like those organizations that already have what we call a tender desk. So a number of people that are dedicated to handling the tenders within right. the organization. That that is that is already a very important. Uh, criteria to say like, okay, uh, is this an ideal, potentially ideal customer? Yes or no? Because if you don't have a volume of tenders, if you do this once per quarter, you get one request per quarter. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Well, optimizing that process is not really going to bring you a lot of value. I, I agree. And to which extent do you see it really different if you have professional services like you're an audit firm or consulting company or law firm versus you, for example, sell software versus you sell hardware? That's also a very important differentiator because what we try to focus on mostly with the platform is 
hang or taking away all the repetitive, very time-consuming tasks. Right. If you are a a software which is basically building a custom software for customers, then the solution that you're building is is almost like unique each and every time. So the portion of repetitive tasks and repetitive work and repetitive documentation that you need to deliver becomes smaller. Right. Well, if you are if you're in the um, in in the more standardized software, for instance, or you are a product company, uh, or you always do business with government agencies, then the portion of repetitiveness is significantly higher. So you look for your ideal customer profile would then be at least like productized services or products like a SaaS solution that's always going to be like the, the, the base to answer the RFP or the tender is going to be the same one. It's like not like a 100% custom professional service firm who says like, whatever you ask us, can you do it? We will say yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then we'll build, then we'll, then we'll start writing the whole story of what needs to happen and how we're going to do it. So then there's, lo there's a lot of uh, work which is unique to that project. While there are, there are thousands of tenders out there where basically half of the questions I wouldn't say are exactly the same as in all the previous ones, but they're very similar to the questions you've seen before. And with our platform, we're basically able to say, wait a minute, Manuel, this question looks very similar to three previous questions we've seen in an in an other RFP. And by the way, here are the answers. Here's how you answered it previously. 100%. And so that, that immediately takes away all the time that you would waste on figuring out, have we seen the question before? What did we answer? Where can I find the information? Yeah, yeah, really awesome. Um... I think, I think it makes so much sense. And then I, I'd have like a few rapid fire, three rapid fire questions that I'm just curious on your take off the 20 plus years in the field. So as this not religious debate, but like if you can hire a junior sales rep for 50K or a senior sales rep for 150K, in your case, that's a question, which one do you take and why? When I, when I hire people, I'm very much focused on... Uh, on, on one thing, which is not necessarily how long have you been in sales before? How many great years of overachievement have you had? Uh, what kind of big companies have you already been successful at? I primarily look at, do you have the passion? Do you have, do you have that, that intrinsic motivation to become successful? Do you have that, that ambition to grow, ambition to learn? Are you coachable? Are you an individual that is willing to learn? I would rather invest in somebody of that type of profile and put effort into it to help that individual grow in becoming a, a much more successful sales professional instead of looking at somebody who says, I've got, I've got 15 years of yeah. success. I've, I've been doing this at these seven big companies and look at how successful I've been because I've experienced it myself. I've been successful in large companies for right. most of my life. The startup life is completely different. You, you it, can it, benefit it, from a lot of it that you take from it, but it is the, the game is completely different. Yeah, 100% agree. And now that you mentioned like you build something from basically like 10 million to 100 million plus, now you need to build something from zero to one What's your number one source for improving your own skills, like any people, podcasts, books that you can recommend to the audience? I'm, 
I'm I'm going on a yeah I'm 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 reading I'm reading books to learn new skills and I'm what I've been what I've been focused on for the last uh, for the last year two years I would say is trying to learn a lot about how how startups are are growing and 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 what is the difference in approach when you're a startup right. when you're trying to get from that zero to one because it is indeed a completely different game. Uh, I've been reading. I've been reading a good book recently uh, from uh, from one of the uh, one of the previous guys who used to be at uh, at Salesforce, basically describing why would you have separate people? Why do you split up the functions in sales? Why do you have an account Predict executive and an SDR revenue, PDR? predictable yeah. revenue by Ross? Yeah, it was formerly on this yeah. podcast. That's, I think it was one that's, of the that's first. the one. It <laughs> it's it's like it's a great book, but for for me, coming from the enterprise space. Having been in the enterprise space for 25 years, this 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 book was like, okay, now <laughs> I get why you would split it up. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Because it's it it is it is different. It is different. Yeah, hundred percent. And and maybe last uh, personal question: like, what's something you would have wished to to know, like when you were 20 years old, and how old are you now? <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm turning I've 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 turned this morning I've turned 58 years old, so I'm 58 years old. Uh, I must say that I'm if I look back at my career I've had a um, a great learning career. If I if I look back at uh, when I started Sequesto I was like uh, yeah 50 54 55 years old. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, I feel like I should have done this much earlier. <laughs> On the other yeah. hand, to be honest, there is there is over thirty years of learning that I carry with me, stuff that I that I can still use at my startup. A lot of stuff that I can't use yet because we're still going through that zero to one phase. Uh, and that will become very helpful uh, again, uh, hope, hopefully in the next couple of years. Yeah, uh, but uh, I consider I consider my uh, my whole career as a uh, as a yeah as a well spent learning exercise because in every step in the career I've learned things and always when you look back you could say like ah oh, if I would have known that twenty years ago <laughs> I would have done different but then it's no longer part but of then, your then, learning journey of course yeah it needs to be experienced not it cannot be read I think so on, so on, that's it yeah. And, and reading yeah. books and listening to podcasts and participating and learning from others, it all it all it all helps to build and shape who you are and what works best for you. And especially in when you talk about sales uh, and uh, building sales team and executing with sales teams, uh, there is always that little magic that you can read all the books that you want, you can go through all the theory that you want. But there's, there's that little extra that will make the big difference, yes or no. The experience of, of doing it. Like and, this that difference comes, between... and that helps a lot. That 100%. helps a lot. And that's also why many startups, what I've seen in the last two, three years in this startup community, there are bright people, there are intelligent people, but many of them are only focused on their product yes. and trying to build this great product. And then the customer will come later. And I think that that is, that is a learning. The customer should come first. Yeah, yeah. 
because it's the customer who will eventually say, what you're building is great and I'm willing to pay the bills for you. I'm willing to give you the money for it. Yeah, 100%. So wrapping it up, uh, we found out like initially we did 60 minute episodes. Now is at like half an hour. That's the the number of time, uh, the time our our um, yeah. audience can jog or commute apparently. So I personally hate tenders or requests for proposals, RFIs, because it was always so cumbersome to, to answer them, right? And often if you're out of control, they just lead nowhere, right? So yeah. congrats, Patrick, on interviewing 200 plus companies on this subject out of which you're building the question now. Um, actually build like a little five point ten checklist. Uh, like first one, can you can we even win here? Then would this contribute to my core business? Or am I uniquely positioned to win? Is the timeline aligned with our internal capabilities? And then is the tender stating the customer's pain specifically enough? So that's the, the five point checklist yep. that I would take away from that. Um, congratulations on, on building the quest. I think it's much needed. I've been looking for this for the better half of a decade. All the best of success, and let me know if I can help. Thanks a lot, Manuel. All the best.